0: All right, praise the Lord for His grace and mercy, for revealing His truth of Christ to us, to tell us of what Christ has done and who He is, and give us the knowledge of the eternal. That's Christ's interest giving us the knowledge of the eternal, of the things that don't perish, things that do not have an end. And this knowledge God has given us in the gospel, that's the good news, that it is well with us no matter what happens, it is well. So God be praised this morning. And I'm glad to be back. The Lord forces rest. Every little thing in his creation is his instrument to do his bidding. There's nothing that is not doing God's will. The bugs, bacteria, viruses, you name them, they are at the command of the Lord to do his work for him. Disease, sickness, they are at the command of God to do his bidding. So this is why we speak a lot about sovereignty. Not, oh he's sovereign over this but he's not sovereign over that. No. He is absolutely sovereign over all his creation and everything was raised by him to do his work. Good morning, all saints, wherever you are, if you are connected, you are tuned in, I pray the Lord will speak to you the matters of life and salvation. We have a long message. Be praying for me that the Lord will grant me grace to speak. It's a message that you need to hear. And we'll go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Upon his word, our Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you again, both you are worthy of blessing and honor, even our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, whom you have revealed to us by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, and by the teaching of the Scriptures, we pray and thank you for this day, that you have allowed us to see with body, mind, and spirit together, For not all who wish to see today were able to see it. We thank you that you have decreed that we should see today, and even so, to see it in the knowledge of Christ. I pray for your people whom we have gathered. Be with them, cause them to hear, and help me to speak. We thank you, we honor you, for all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 4. Romans 4, 5-8 Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit recorded for us and said But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly his faith is accounted for righteousness just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Those are the words of the Lord. We have two titles. Number one title that will carry the message, the blessed man. The blessed man. The blessed man is also the blessed woman. And number two title is Righteousness Apart from Works. Righteousness Apart from Works for the Blessed Man. (laughs) So we continue again with the teaching of how God makes a sinner righteous. This is the subject matter of which we ought to be preoccupied with because... Christ Jesus cannot be known apart from answering this question for a sinner in the way that God has answered it. And you will not know how you stand before God unless you know and believe how God has answered the question. The problem in the professing church World is, they are not interested in this boring subject. They want things to do. They want to be entertained. Things to tickle them once, twice, and forever. If it were possible, just tickle me. Tell me about my best life. They want to hear about things that make them appreciated, that help to improve their self-esteem. And so God, in response, gives them over to preachers who give them such things as they want, as they like. They give them over to ear ministries and that is the working of a strong delusion to which God has given over men and women even this morning. A lot of religious men and women have been given over to a strong delusion to believe a lie that they may be condemned because they did not retain the love of the truth in them, the love of the knowledge of Christ in them. Christ was very inconvenient because they have other important things to do. Don't talk too much about Jesus. And so our gospel has to answer the question of justification. The way that God has answered it, otherwise we believe a false gospel. And so Apostle Paul has labored To bring all men and women to despair. To bring them to the knowledge of their hopelessness in condemnation. From the Romans, one country citizen, to the moralists, to the law keeper. The moralists and the law keeper are the best of humanity. And Paul says, oh no, they are condemned. And his message is especially disappointing to the moralists who thought they were good people. We are good people. And also to the law keeper who thought it was well between them and God because of their law keeping. And Paul came and said, oh, us us, There's none righteous. There's none who understands. There's none who does good. There's none who seeks after God. All have become unprofitable. You see, all this testimony about the human spiritual condition is ignored by many preachers and professing believers. And that is why Their theological thinking is messed up. Because if you ignore the human spiritual condition, human depravity, total depravity, and spiritual inability, you end up giving sinners spiritual abilities that they do not possess, like a free will. There's no sinner who has a free will. And salvation is not about human free will, even if the will was free. Human free will or human will is a slave to sin. The human will is a slave. But free will is invoked to deny the truth of God's free and sovereign grace especially his work in election, is a denial of God's election. And it is always raised to try and counter God's truth of his absolute sovereignty in salvation. Religious men and women hate election because they understand the implication of it they clearly understand that it will take away from them all the power of self-determination. It will take away their power of decision-making of eternal matters. And so they will double down in unbelief and even quote some verses out of context. But human free will... Is unbelief. That is all there is to it. Is unbelief. One who believes in human free will still needs to be granted repentance by God and to the truth. They are still an unbeliever. So Paul says, The law is not helpful to a sinner. The law cannot be helpful to you and me. It's too late for that. It was not given to help us in any way with respect to accomplishing salvation by something that we do. But there is hope. There is a way. There is a righteousness that God has revealed. You see, the righteousness is revealed. You don't do righteousness. It is revealed to you. A righteousness has been revealed that answers to the justification of a sinner before God that makes Kathleen a righteous person before God, a holy person, in spite of everything that she has done and whoever taught. And this righteousness is called the righteousness of God. It is not the righteousness of Paul. It is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of the law will be called the righteousness of Ella or Sister Deb. And you don't want that righteousness. Run away from that righteousness. You want this righteousness that is called the righteousness of God. And it is righteousness that is apart from works of the law, righteousness apart from human obedience. It is a righteousness that comes by another, by the obedience of another, the person called Christ Jesus. It is his faithfulness, in obedience to God, and this is the righteousness that God uses to call and pronounce you as righteous before him. This righteousness, this is the only righteousness that God uses to pronounce a sinner as righteous before him. There's no other righteousness. But in this, the law had a purpose in salvation history. But salvation has history. And the law is there In the history of salvation. To give the knowledge of sin. As x-rays. Are to a person. With pneumonia. Or broken bones. The law. Giving. An x-ray. Of your spiritual condition. The condition of the human heart. And its inability to cleanse itself, its inability to be righteous before God. So the gospel is not opposed to the law in this regard as long as we understand the purpose for which the law was given. But the law is only honored and established through faith or by faith as righteous. It's honored only by the gospel. By Christ's imputed righteousness. By the faithfulness of Christ. That's the only way to honor the law for what the law stands for. To claim that you are doing the law is to actually desecrate the law itself and the righteousness of Christ. And so to say, through faith we establish the law was not speaking as the reformed people would want to interpret it, was not speaking to continuity of the law as binding on the conscience of the redeemed, but to its function and purpose in salvation history. The righteousness that was attested by the law could only be had through Christ and not us trying to do the law. And so Abraham attained to this righteousness of faith, the righteousness of not doing anything, not through law-keeping, but through faith. Abraham did not cause anything in his own salvation, Abraham was not a righteous person in himself. He got Hagar pregnant. (laughs) Yeah. Because if Abraham did anything to be called righteous before God, then he had something to boss about and say, see, look at how good and cute I am. I was so good and industrious and obedient that God had no choice but to come and pronounce me as a righteous man. God had no choice. Look at me. But Paul says that is not how Abraham was called righteous by God. It was him believing God's promises to him And Abraham believing that Abraham, so Abraham believing that his righteousness was coming from God's promise, not from his own doing. Okay. So through faith, Abraham was credited with the righteousness of God. But it was not just believing anything about God, because the Mormons believe something about God. They do. Abraham believed God's promises of Christ. The descendant through whom the whole world of the elect would be blessed. And so Abraham was pronounced as righteous on account of Christ. Because it is only Christ who justifies. Abraham was declared is righteous by God, looking to the sure coming of the Lord Jesus. So the real transaction of Abraham's justification was not in Genesis 15.6. The real transaction was on Mount Calvary. Mount Calvary was the cause of Genesis 15, 6. Not in his faith. The faith of Abraham itself was not the merit. The blood of Christ was the merit. In this matter of salvation, there's only one way to justify a sinner. There's only one way. It is Christ Jesus. Because of the issues that surround who God is and who you are. The issues that arise because of the nature of God and because of who you are. As a child of the dust, demand that only Christ has the righteousness that God accepts. This is not about all antinomianism and stuff. That's all foolishness. Because they don't understand the conversation around the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. There has to be satisfaction of God's wrath for the sinner by way of the shedding of blood. Not your blood not the blood of bulls and goats; those could never take away sin, but the blood of Christ. So the death of Christ was, along the basis of Abraham's justification, not his good works. Thus Abraham was made righteous only by the imputation by accrediting of Christ's righteousness to him. So Paul reached out this far into Genesis to the history of national Israel. And he went for a figure, a figurehead In their history. Whom they held. In the highest of esteem. And said guess what. Your father Abraham. Was declared righteous. By this same gospel. That I am now presenting to you. That you are now rejecting. As heresy. And foolishness. And you are trying to kill me for it. And if the Jews could understand that this is how their forefather was declared a righteous man by God, by the imputation of Christ's righteousness, then this was also true for them, if they should be saved. And we did go to the book of James in the previous message, message number 15 from our Roman series to speak to the matter of what James was talking about with respect to justification, being of faith plus works. And we concluded that, that though James and Paul reached out to the same person of Abraham and the same text of Genesis 15.6 Paul was speaking of objective justification before God and James was speaking to subjective justification before man. That's different. Because Abraham was declared by God Is righteous in Genesis 15, verse 6. And yet, the thrust of James' argument happened 20 years later on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22 after Isaac was already born. So James' justification is speaking to faith In action. The faith of the redeemed in action. It is not speaking to their objective standing before God. Okay? And in that particular context, James was speaking to service within the body of the redeemed. And that is what is consistent with the thinking that James was working. So then to run to James to draw to the conclusion that he was speaking of objective justification of a sinner before God by faith and works is not correct understanding because your works could never answer to the issues of God's righteousness and holiness. Your works and mine could never answer to that. They could never pay a dime towards that. Okay? To teach that James was teaching of your objective righteousness before God is a denial of justification by grace alone. It would immediately cancel out the death of Christ and God's acceptance of his payment as the only cause of our reconciliation with God. So, our conclusion was, the gospel is not of works, but it is not anti-good works. Our works are not the basis of what makes us righteous before God. That is all transacted in Christ Jesus. So faith in Christ has greater weight and significance for the sinner than do their works. Because, as we remarked, our works can be duplicated by even the unbelievers. The unbelievers can even do greater works. The Muslims, when they lend each other money, they don't pay interest. You get twenty thousand, forty, fifty, hundred thousand. You don't pay interest. That's wonderful. That's cheap money. Don't become a Muslim because you're trying to get a loan that's free. (laughs) But you get the sense of what I'm saying. Our good works can be duplicated easily. But what can't be duplicated is standing on Christ alone. Okay? Also, once a sinner begins to rely on their works for their confidence before God then they will never have a clean conscience they will begin to doubt their own salvation and find themselves in unbelief they will find themselves wondering if they've done enough good works given enough money Prayed enough, being getting sanctified enough, progressing enough, and we never have any comfort with that. So this whole salvation of Christ leaves no room for sinners to boast before God. And thus, and that is how we ought to read things if we are to be consistent with God's thinking about the whole matter. And so, Apostle Paul sought to amplify this understanding of how Abraham was made and pronounced as righteous before God and said, Romans 4, 4 and 5. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but as debt. A worker's wages or paycheck is what they get from their employer as something that they earned by their sweat. as something owed them. But there's no Employer who gives monthly paychecks as grace or as a gift without doing any work unless if you are the US government. <laughs> the government does that because it is doling out money that it did not work for. So by the same token, a sinner is not mad and cannot be made righteous before God because or by something that they do in good works of righteousness. it does not commend you before him as a righteous person. Because the implicit. The implication then is that God is made a debtor to men for the wonderful work that they did to cause their own salvation. Salvation then becomes like a paycheck that God gives you for your own righteousness. So God now has to pay each one With eternal life because that's the only thing he has to pay for someone who is good. He only has eternal life to give where there is righteousness. So now he is obligated to give eternal life because of what you contributed by your own works. And in that scheme, God will never hear the end of the Boston. You know what the little children do? As soon as they can do anything, put on their shoes, I'll do it by myself. I did it by myself. It's Boston. And that never ends until Christ comes and slews them with the gospel and say, no, 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 you did not do it by yourself. so what's the solution that is consistent with the God who does not share his glory with any other verse 5 but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly his faith is accounted for righteousness the faith of Christ is accounted Because I've been thinking about that second part of verse 5. His faith is accounted for righteousness. Whose faith? It's the faith of Christ that is accounted for righteousness. To the person who does not work. To try and be justified by God by their own good deeds. But believes On him who justifies the ungodly his faith the faith of Christ is accounted for righteousness. See what God has said. God calls the person who seeks justification the ungodly. You have to underline that. God only justifies one kind of people The ungodly. That's your qualification. That is who you and I are before him. Apart from Christ. We are the ungodly. Now you ask people if they think they are ungodly. No, they'll find a way to polish up their resume and say, uh... Just some oops moments. Once in a while, just some things that I did when I was little. Uh, I remember, um, yeah, when I was 25, but otherwise, I'm a wonderful person. I'm very good. I never got any speeding ticket. I pay my bills on time. Just, I'm just a nice neighbor. <laughs> but God says no. Only the ungodly are credited with his righteousness, the righteousness accomplished by Christ. And these ungodly do believe the gospel. Okay? The ungodly are they who believe the gospel, the self righteous people do not believe the gospel. And God is not going to credit righteousness to all the ungodly people of the world, but only those who believe. And who are these who believe? Because many who invoke their so-called free will and say, all men have ability to believe. If you're a preacher and you're listening to me, man, you need to change that teaching. People do not naturally have ability to believe okay that's the statement of unbelief as I said earlier here the words of the Lord Jesus John 10 john ten twenty three to twenty eight John says, And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not using your free will right. Because that will be the thing for Jesus to say, that I gave you all the ability to believe, but you are just failing to exercise your God-given ability, your free will. Hear what Jesus said. But you do not believe because... You are not of my ship, as I said to you. That Jesus is rough. The majority of professing Christianity cannot deal with this Jesus. Okay? They will do contortions to try and explain this away. It's very clear. Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. People believe because they are sheep. Faith does not make you a sheep. Faith does not convert a God into a sheep. Faith confirms that you already belong to Christ. You always worship, even though you were ungodly. Yeah? Cause and effect is very important. All sheep believe, and they come to him, they hear his voice, they believe the truth, and they follow him. As he said, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. That's what I do. And some foolish person is going to say, oh, you lose salvation. Based on 1, Jesus said, he gives his sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish. So if you come with the gospel, that salvation can be lost. You are going against Jesus. So who do we believe? You or Jesus? Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch Christ's people from his hands. And he even when to say, even from the Father's hand. He said, my Father is greater than all, and nobody, there's double insurance? If for some reason you can wiggle your way out of Christ's hand, he says, no, you're not going to come out of my father's hand. <laughs> Salvation cannot be lost, my friends. Not by your sin. Because people say, oh, Paul, you've been sinning and you continue to sin. Uh, I, I think, no, because they're not reading things correctly. You don't base eternal matters on Paul, this our Paul, you base it on Christ. That's the thing that a lot of these popular preachers play gimmicks with people's lives and they leave people feeling unsaved with every one of their messages. They will say, "Oh, I'm saved by grace," and midway through the message, they turn it upside down. They're playing gimmicks. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Actually, it's, if I'm correct, the double negative, never ever perish. It's not gonna happen. So the sheep are ungodly people. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> they are ungodly people. So don't be surprised when you sin. Because that's who you are ungodly people and the sheep do agree with God that they are ungodly the sheep know that they have no other way to be called righteous apart from the free imputation of God's righteousness so they hear they believe and they rest God justifies the wicked do not miss that God justifies the wicked because if you think you are wicked, we have some very good news for you. And he freely justifies them by the righteousness of Christ. So, faith is not the condition that the ungodly meet to have the righteousness of Christ. Faith is God working in the elect, in the appointed time, in his ungodly people to give them the knowledge of their standing before him and of the assurance of salvation in Christ who is the substance Of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Christ Jesus. That's what faith is doing. It's God working to give us the spiritual eyes to see who we truly are before Him on account of Christ. Yeah? So Paul, see that Paul made a distinction between working and believing. Working is works, bears salvation, and believing means not working. Faith does not work for salvation because it is contrary to working. Faith is a resting and a trusting in God's way and saying that is enough. For me to fit me for glory. Faith is trusting that what God says about Christ is enough for you. Faith is saying God is just in crediting a righteousness that you did not work for. A righteousness that is not yours. And giving it to you. And blessing you based on that righteousness that you did not earn. So faith is saying if I should die this minute Christ is enough to answer for me before God, everything that God would ever ask of me. That's faith. And faith is saying, lazy boy gospel. <laughs> I have entered into, re- into God's rest because I have also seized from my own works of righteousness. Faith. Is saying, God's method, we have two methods here. We have your method of trying to be good, and then there's God's method. And faith is saying, God's method is the only legitimate way to enter into his inheritance and have a title and have a right to eternal life. And faith acknowledges the person of Christ Jesus alone as the merit, as the reason of all things, especially your standing before God. Faith does not boast in the doing of the ungodly. So the teaching that God gives all men faith to believe and that some who have faith fail to believe because they're watching too much YouTube. <laughs> and they fail to exercise this God-given faith and some end up in hell. It's foolish teaching. It's false teaching. There's nothing like that. Okay? The faith that God gives is a non-failing Faith. It will always see Christ no matter how weak. Okay? It will always see Christ no matter how weak it is. But Paul then says, if you think this was only true for Abraham, let me go to another big father figure in the history of Israel. Let us go to David. These are the most important people in Jewish history. You have Abraham, you have David. So if you knock Abraham, you knock David, then the Jews have no way to run. Yeah? So this is what he says. As David says, that's Romans 4.6. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. See that imputation of righteousness apart from works, separate from works. Righteousness credited to a sinner apart from works. That is the biggest scandal of the history In the history of humanity. That's scandalous. It's the biggest scandal in the history of creation. That an ungodly person gets title to God's blessing for free. Yeah? Because it means the best of men and women and the worst of them If they are both elect, are seen as both righteous. Even the very worst of them, the stripper, the drug dealer, and the most pious of men and women, if they belong to Christ, they have the same standing before Him. That's scandalous. That's offensive but that's glorious. (laughs) This is the offense that the religious self-righteous do not like to hear. That is why they will run back to the law to try to make you righteous like them. They will try to run to any verse that seems to exalt their own goodness Because this imputation of righteousness just wreaks havoc to their whole economy of self-righteousness. But David comes and calls the state of possessing the imputed righteousness of Christ, the blessing that makes for the blessed man what he calls the blessed man. What did David say? Verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. That That's very scandalous. It causes my heart to skip a bit maybe bits when I've been reminded of my own sin and my own my own ungodliness. Then I come and hear this. I'm like, is this really true? <laughs> is this really true? Because if this is true, this is the best thing ever. For God not to impute any of his sins to you. And this is the quotation from Psalm thirty-two. Let's go there. Psalm thirty-two, one to five. Psalm thirty-two, one to five. A psalm of David. A contemplation. David says, "Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered." The psalmist, after having received The news of the forgiveness of his sins expressed joy over the fact, over that fact. There was good news to him. And he could only consider himself as the blessed man. (laughs) But we are going to develop something here. The blessed man is also spoken of in Psalm 1, verse 1. Of a person who lives a righteous life. Let's go there. Psalm 1, verse 1 and 2. This is some good stuff. Psalm 1, verse 1 and 2. The psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. What do we see? The psalmist has presented to us another blessed man this one is a righteous man. And this is the life of this blessed man in someone. He does not walk. He does not walk. Ever. He does not stand or sit in the cancer, in the way, or sit of the wicked, of the ungodly, of sinners, of mockers, of scorners. This blessed man does not ever. So we have two blessed men here in our consideration. The blessed man described in Psalm 1 who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, and the Psalm 32 man whose sins has been forgiven. And both are called blessed men. But here's the issue. Which category of the blessed man do you belong? Do you belong to the category of the blessed man who does not walk or stand or sit in the council of the ungodly? The sinners. Because for all I know, you and I have walked in the counsel of the ungodly. <laughs> and you still do in many ways. And let us say, we are not the person described in someone. Because a lot of preachers, the lawkeeper, preacher, reformed preachers who go to someone and try to say, Don't this is the man that you should be now, because. Don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Don't. Yeah. You are not the person described in someone. Even on your very best day, you're not. You are not the man who delights in the law of God. You and I are not that man who meditates on it day and night. Who is meditating on the law day and night, people? Someone tell the truth. We meditate day and night on social media. On our phones, right? Not on the law of God. On TikTok, on YouTube. That's where we meditate day and night. So who is the blessed man in Psalm 1? It is none other than the Lord Jesus. Christ Jesus is the blessed man who walked not in the counsel of the ungodly nor stood in the path of sinners. It's Christ Jesus. He is the blessed man of someone. 1. We, on the other hand, belong to the category of the blessed man in Psalm 32 whose transgressions are forgiven. Because Christ never had any transgressions forgiven him. Because he was not a sinner. Our category of being called the blessed man is Psalm 32. Because our sins are covered. We are so ungodly that it doesn't make sense to say we are blessed not walking in the counsel of the ungodly. Because remember, Paul said righteousness is credited to the ungodly. Yeah? So we are the ungodly but we are the blessed and godly of Psalm 32. Blessed by the non-imputation of our sin to us. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Yeah? Our blessedness does not come from our good works but from the non-imputation of our sin to our account. That's where your blessing comes. And that's by God's decree. God decreed that he would not and will not impute any of your sins to your account. That's blessedness. That's blessedness. So Abraham was justified before God Not because of someone, but because of Psalm 32. David became righteous, was a righteous man, not because of someone, but because of Psalm 32. Non imputation of sin. And David said, verse 2 in Psalm 32, Blessed is the man to whom The Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In what way is there no deceit to be found in the mouths of the ungodly? Because it is they who benefit from the non-imputation of their sin. They have no deceit not because they have stopped lying to their friends but because they confess and agree with God that they are ungodly. That's where that is coming from. The no deceit is saying you agree with what God is saying about you and about himself. That's the no deceit. They have no deceit because Christ is now their righteousness. To say, to say I'm a sinner is no deceit. You're not lying. You're telling the truth. To say you're ungodly, you're telling the truth before God. Because there are no lies in that. There are no lies in saying that I'm a sinner. Because I am. And that's the testimony. If there's a testimony that pleases God, that's no deceit. Because remember the issue between Jesus and the Jews. They were deceitful because they thought they were righteous in themselves. So he told a lot of parables to those who thought they were righteous in themselves. And the Lord despised them. They were not telling the truth. But those who were sinners, woman caught in adultery, he had no issues with her whatsoever. Yeah? So anyone who claims to be righteous in themselves and say they are keeping the law, they are full of deceit. It's deception. They are not counted among the blessed of God. Psalm 32 verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. There was David battling with the heavy conviction of his sin. And that conviction was coming by God's hand that he said was heavy upon me. Ella, all these people who talk about their own free will in salvation are yet to meet with the God of David David said his vitality his strength was turned into the drought of summer because of the conviction of sin the remorse of conscience was crushing David because God was pressing him and here David is describing godly repentance remember Apostle Paul makes." makes a distinction between worldly repentance versus godly repentance. Okay? So God was pressing on David and then in verse 5 of Psalm 32 David says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgive the iniquity of my sin. So David had not yet acknowledged his sin to God, and so God was pressing hard on him unto repentance, hard by way of conviction. When God comes after you with conviction, And he is seeking your repentance. You won't sleep. He will see to it that you won't sleep. So he came. David came and confessed his transgressions. To confess means to agree with someone. So he came and agreed with what God was saying about his sin. David said, He forgave the iniquity of my sin. Wow. Is that what it takes for sin to be forgiven? What had actually happened? What had happened is that God had not imputed the sin of David to him even when he committed it. It was not found in his account. There was no rogue police officer who came and removed the docket and took it home or shredded it. The sin was not recorded. It was not recorded. The sin of David was not recorded. In God's books, it was not. It was recorded in Dev's mind and in his heart, but not in God's book. Let's go to the story. That occasioned the writing of this blessed truth. But you see, people don't know how to read the Old Testament. And that is why there's a lot of character assassination of people like David. Because people are not paying attention to what God is teaching. God is using these people that he may bring out the doctrine of your salvation. It is not about their moral depravity as such. That's not God's point. God does not need to record about David to teach you about depravity. He has you already. (laughs) Okay? So you need to understand that when you're reading the Old Testament, it's it's not about the moral depravity of the people who are used by God. God is preaching something bigger than that. So God has all this happen with David because he intends to preach Psalm 32 and he intends to draw that into Romans chapter 4. That's the purpose of the shenanigans of David. Let's hear this. David and Bathsheba. David had taken Bathsheba. This is a well-known story. And David had killed Uriah, the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba, with whom she had no children. David, sorry, Bathsheba and Uriah did not have any children together. Okay? The testimony we have preached on that to say Uriah is a type of the law, could not bear children, With God's people. The law cannot make you fruitful unto salvation. That is why Uriah could not have children with Bathsheba. But yes, with David. They had five children. Yeah? David is Christ. Christ makes you fruitful unto salvation. That's the point. And God had despised That part of the story begins in 2 Samuel 11. And God had despised the prophet Nathan to go and confront David about the whole matter, the taking of Uriah's wife and the death of Uriah by the instruction of David. And sometime after the birth of Bathsheba's son, Nathan the prophet came and told David a story of a certain rich man who, in spite of having everything, stole a poor man's or a neighbor's you, a female lamb, to provide a feast for a guest. Enraged David pronounced that the man who had done such a thing, such a despicable thing in his mind, should die. So David made a pronouncement on the man. And by this, David had made a pronouncement on himself of his own death. He had pronounced a death sentence on himself. God used his own mouth to declare a sentence of death on David. He said, oh, this man should surely die. Here, what happened afterwards? 2 Samuel 12, let's go to 2 Samuel 12, 7 to 14. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. That says, the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. By saying you are the man, Nathan was not giving props to David and saying, dude, you rock. Give me a high five. You are the man. You are the man. No, he was pointing him as the offender. You are the man, David. You are the guilty man. Now, Nathan delivers God's message to David and says, verse eight, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. So David had been given his master's house and his master's wives for keeping and the house of Israel in the house of Judah. And that tells you that David was a type of Christ. That's what that is saying. Christ Jesus is he who was entrusted with the master's house, God the Father, and the master's wives, the church, as it were. These are pictures, but the reality of it is found in Christ in the church. Christ is the one who has been given charge over the body of Christ to keep it. Okay? And to rule over them. And God said, verse 9, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon the Ammonites. And so God says, David, you have despised the commandment of the Lord God and did evil in his sight. You committed murder. You killed Uriah with the sword of the Ammonites. Now to the judgment on David, verse 11, verse 10. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. God says, the sword of his wrath, that's the sword that Jesus that the Lord is talking about. The sword of God's wrath would never depart from the house of David. And that means the curse of God would remain or not depart from the house of David, from the house of Judah, from generation to generation. There's something that is going on that we don't have enough time to develop. But it's coming from Adam. And the curse is working its way all the way into the house of David. But that's the way it's supposed to be taken care of. And God comes and says, The sword shall not depart from your house, David. It shall not depart. The sword of God's wrath is in the house of David. So what else are you going to do? We expand a little bit more of that. What else are you going to do? Verse 11. Thus say the Lord, Behold, I will raise up Adversity against you from your own house. And I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Adversity would be raised up by God himself. Against him from his own house, And his wives would be taken by God and be given to his neighbor to abuse them. God said he'll do that. Not the devil. God said, I'll do that. I'll see to it that your wives are taken by someone close to you. God said that. You could not preach this in a lot of churches. They'll try to clean it up. There's no reason to clean it up. God said it. And this God, many people have never heard of. They've never heard of. And if they did, they will find a way to blame the wives instead. And say, oh, see, they were wearing short skirts, mini skirts. That's why this happened to them. No. God said, I'm going to take them. He will cause the wives of David to lie with his neighbor, cause them to sin against him. And God did this. He brought the adversity in the house of David through Absalom, one of the sons of David. The Absalom who attempted a coup to take the throne of his father David. And it is Absalom at the council of Ahithophel in 2 Samuel 16. Who slept, they actually built a tent outside. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, you go on the top of the tent with your father's wives and sleep with them. And Absalom agreed. And he did just as God has said, would be done. So who caused Absalom to do that? Who caused Haithophel to give that counsel? God did. That's sovereignty. That's a sovereignty that a lot of people are not able to read from the scriptures. Advice from worthless people. Right in the openness of the day, And see that none of the wives refused. Why? Because of sovereignty. They had to agree with whatever Absalom said to be done. So who caused Absalom to do this? With no remorse, no shame. It was not Absalom who caused it. It was not Ahithophel, his friend, his advisor, who caused it. It's God who did. Did what Absalom do sinful? Was it sinful for Absalom to sleep in the open with his own father's wives? Yes, it was very sinful. But who caused him to do it? God caused him to do it. God said he was going to cause him to do it. Now, did God become a sinner... Because he caused someone to do sinful things because that's what people say. Oh, God is not the author of sin. Did God become a sinner for causing Absalom to sleep with his father's wives? No, God did not become a sinner. He remained holy and righteous. This is the God of the Bible. This is how Judas found himself betraying Christ and God was behind it. Judas could not betray Jesus apart from God causing it. Okay? And yet God was righteous in doing that. But who is this neighbor of David who is given the wives of David and yet causes them to sin? Who is, who is this neighbor? Because God says, I'm going to give your wives to your neighbor. And they're going to abuse them and sleep with them in the open. And cause them to sin. To commit adultery as it were. God is saying, I'm going to cause them to commit adultery. That's the God of the Bible. What do you say, you law keepers? Does your God do that? Who is this neighbor? It is none other than the law. God is preaching. The law is the neighbor of David, is the neighbor of Christ, of the sons of Jacob. Levi is number three of the boys. Number four is Judah. The neighbor that is causing trouble with the wives of David is the law, is Levi. And so, Absalom, even though he was the son of David, was presented as a picture of the law because of his beauty. The text says Absalom was so beautiful, God described him in feminine terms. He was the most handsome man to ever walk in Israel. His hair was so long that they used to harvest it. And if it were this time of making wigs and stuff like that, the girls would be like, oh, I have some Absalom hair. You know? <laughs> it was beautiful. Absalom was beautiful, and yet he caused people to sin. Absalom was handsome, and yet he was brutal. Because the law is good, it's beautiful, it's holy, but it kills. The law kills. So people will be attracted to Absalom. Oh, what a handsome guy. Handsome guy who kills. The law is the picture of the handsome guy that kills because of sin. That's the connection, that's the preaching. Okay, It's not about the moral character of these people. It's about the gospel that God is putting in them. Okay? So the law brings wrath. It is ruthless to a sinner in spite of his beauty, in spite of his goodness. It exposes us in the sight of the sun outside as unrighteous and condemns us. And this to the shame of Christ to whom the bride had been given by God the Father. But God said to David, I have a lot of stuff to talk to this. When you're done with Exodus, we're going to go into 1st, 2nd Samuel and work some gospel. We're going to fill in a lot of the details. Okay? But this beautiful stuff. But God said to David, still continuing in 2nd Samuel 12, 2nd Samuel 12, verse 12. For he did it secretly, but I'll do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Yes, David has sinned. See that David said, I have sinned against the Lord. He did not say, I have sinned against Bathsheba or sinned against Uriah. Because all sin is Godward. You only sin against God, because he alone is righteous. Now this is what the law said about the matter in which David and Bathsheba found themselves. The matter of adultery and the matter of committing murder. Exodus 21 verse 12. Exodus 21 verse 12. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. That's Exodus 21 verse 12. He who strikes a man so that he die shall surely be shall surely be put to death. In Leviticus twenty verse ten, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So that means David and Bathsheba were under the sentence of death, by reason of Leviticus 2010 and Exodus 21: 12, they should both die. They were supposed to die. And that means both need to be justified if they should live, and they both lived. That's scandalous. How do David and Bathsheba live after what the law said should happen to them? They should die. Let us work some gospel understanding and typology. As I said before, in the matter of the children of Israel, the children of Jacob, Levi, representing the priesthood of the law, the mediators of the law, was number three son. And Judah, representing David and Christ, was number four. So Levi, representing the law, was the neighbor to whom the church had been married because the church is married to Judah to Christ. Dan was number five, a neighbor of Judah too. Because right there, you have Levi, Judah, Dan. But Dan was not a type of the law. Because he was never the mediator of the law. The mediation of the law was to the neighbor who is Levi. So the neighbor of concern to Christ was Levi. God gave the church to be under the law to be discovered as sinners through who? Through the law, through Levi. It's only through the law that we are given the knowledge of sin. We are not given the knowledge of sin through Dan. It's through Levi. So this is the neighbor. That we are dealing with. The law is the neighbor to Christ that we are dealing with. This is the neighbor that gives us the most trouble. This is the labor, the neighbor that brings death. is through Levi. And so when Christ came, the gospel transaction was for him to come through Judah and to get married to the church that was married to sin, death, and condemnation, the church that was under the law, married to Levi, the church also in the picture of, what's his name? Uriah. Uriah was a picture of the law. As I said, it was made by Sheba. And for David to get Bathsheba, what happens to Uriah? Uriah must die. That is the end of the law for righteousness. If Christ should be married to Bathsheba, if Christ should be married to the church, then the law cannot remain standing. It has to die. That's Romans 7 teaching. We die to the law through the death of Christ. So Uriah must die. The law must die. Anyone who's preaching the gospel that the law remains is saying Uriah did not die and yet David still remained married to his wife. Okay? So Uriah must die. The law has come to an end. Christ, the end of the law for righteousness. Okay? Okay? And God said, if Christ should take the bride from the law, from Levi, then that is tantamount to adultery. You have to listen carefully in this. If Christ should come and take the bride to the law to which they are tied because of sin, that is tantamount to adultery. And God said, the adulterer and the adulterers shall surely be put to death. And that will say, that statement from Exodus and from Leviticus 20 about the adulterer and the adulterers dying is a sentence on Christ. It is a sentence on Christ Jesus This is what it means that the law was testifying of Jesus. Christ is treated as an adulterer, not because he was an adulterer in person, but because of the transaction of the gospel, it requires that he be treated as such. So he had to be, he had to die if we were to be redeemed from our marriage to the law and be married to him. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he may redeem those who were under the law. And that to say, we died with Christ. We were condemned with him. Because remember, the adulterer and the adulteress should both die. So we died with him and we resurrected with him That is the union. Because God, in Leviticus 20, verse 10, of tying the death of their daughter and their daughter is speaking to union. They are united together, right? They are united. So we were united to Christ. So those married to Christ died and resurrected with Him because Christ came under the condemnation of our sin because of our union with Him. Union is a big, big, big word in the understanding of the gospel, okay? So again, I'm going to qualify this for people who are not accustomed to typology and our teaching. I did not say Jesus actually committed adultery in the real sense. This was God preaching. That is why many do not get it Because they absolutize things in a way and miss the point. God is preaching something that is glorious by that. The Lord testifies of Christ and that is its testimony. He must die because he is redeeming the church that was tied or married to something else. Okay? So he died as an adulterer. That's true. Christ died as the murderer. Christ died as the thief. Christ died as the prostitute. Why? Because all the sins of his people, they are ungodly, they were murderers, they were prostitutes, they were adulterers, all those sins were imputed to him. And that is why a murderer like Barabbas, a thief like Barabbas, a troublemaker like Barabbas, was set free. What happened to the charge of his murder? What happened to the charge of his thieving? It was all transferred to Christ. That's imputation. So Christ then assumes all that on himself and that's what God is preaching. And that's what we are saying. It's all by imputation. Okay? See this again. We are almost getting done. Verse 10 of Second Samuel 12. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. So that's the conclusion. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. The sword is speaking to the condemnation of sin. It is speaking to the curse speaking to the case. And God's issue was David taking Bathsheba. But it was more than that. God was preaching something greater and glorious. He says the case has to remain in the house of David. Because as Jacob said to Judah in Genesis 49.10, this is what Jacob, when Jacob was blessing his sons, this is what he said to Judah in Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people the scepter of the king, the rulership shall not depart from Judah. And when he comes, Shiloh, that's Christ, he shall be the obedience of the people. The curse shall not depart. So you see there are two things that are not departing from the house of Judah. The rulership shall not depart from the house of Judah, which means it shall not depart from Christ and also The curse shall not depart from Christ. It shall not depart from the house of David because it is following the house of David. It is a target. The curse of God always had a target. It was not going to leave David's house. Okay? And hear this again. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. And to him shall be the righteousness of the people. It is Shiloh who is our obedience before God. It is Shiloh, Christ Jesus, who is our righteousness. This is very consistent. This is where I say the Bible is amazing. It's an amazing book. But it's too consistent in its theology of salvation. Christ is my obedience. Christ is your obedience. He shall be this one who is the king shall be your obedience before God. Okay? And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. (laughs) The Lord has also given everything that I've told you, David. This is the conclusion of the matter. The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Because David knows he's supposed to die. How is that possible? Seeing what the law says should happen to both David and Bathsheba. Something has happened here. They should both be put to death and yet they live. What is that? That does not sound right or sound fair. And much of the professing church world hates this about David, the ones who think are very faithful spouses, they hate this. They don't want David to be set free. They, If David had been killed, oh, they would feel so good. Oh, they would feel so good. They want David to die. The majority of the professing church world want David to die. I'm not lying to you. That's why they're so ashamed of David. They want him dead. For this sin, they do not want David to be forgiven of his sin. But knowing that God is preaching that they are in the same position as David, they are guilty of the same thing that David and Bathsheba were guilty of. And if they should live, God has to do something. God has to pronounce something and say, I've put away your sin. And you shall not die. That's the gospel. It has nothing to do with you keeping anything. You can't keep anything. Salvation is in God coming and saying, I've put away your sin. and You shall not die. You shall not be condemned. And that's why David will come and say, Oh, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. That's where all this is going. The most glorious news for all the adulterers and adulteresses and murderers. What is Nathan saying? He's saying, David, you are the blessed man. (laughs) You are the blessed man of Psalm 32. Your sin was not imputed to you even though he had committed murder, even though he had killed an innocent man and taken his wife Bathsheba. God has taken away your sin. You shall not die. But when did God put away David's sin? Was it on condition of his tears and penitence? Did David go to... Bathsheba's family and say oh I'm sorry I'm going to try to make amends I'll give you one of my boys and I'll pay you with 500 head of cattle which he probably had as the king of Israel no None imputation of sin by grace alone it happened before David even received the news from Nathan it happened by grace alone. It was not dependent on David's good behavior. They say, oh yeah, don't do it again. Don't take another man's wife again. Don't do it, David, or else I'll impute that thing back to you. That's what a lot of people preach. But Nathan preached the gospel of God's grace. And he continued verse 14 of 2 Samuel However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. So the sin of David and Bathsheba was forgiven. But something was not forgiven. His son with Bathsheba could not be forgiven could not live even though he did not do anything. His son with Bathsheba is not the one who committed adultery. And yet he was not forgiven. God smote him. He was stricken of God. Why so harsh on the son who did nothing wrong? Because sin is not forgiven without payment by the death of the son. Some innocent person has to die in the place of someone. And this son of David and Bathsheba has to die for mommy and daddy to live. For them to be justified from all their sins. But wait, there's more. The son of David who has to die is who? It is Christ Jesus. Christ is the son of David and Bathsheba according to the genealogy. And it is he who was pictured in the death of the first son of David and Bathsheba. See that he was the first son of David and Bathsheba. He had to die in the picture of Christ. God says, you shall surely not die, but your son shall surely die. Which means the basis of your justification is the death of Christ. Only the death of Christ is the basis. That's where you were justified. When the son of David and Bathsheba dies, guess what? You are pronounced as righteous. That's what God is preaching. No imputation of sin to those who are in him. They are the blessed people. The death of the son of David in Bathsheba is the condition of a justification. It is not in your law keeping, it is not in your faith. It's the death of the son of David. Christ Jesus. And that means it is the cross alone that justifies you before God. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. There's no cancellation. There's no justification. There's no reconciliation. The blood of the son of David. See that nothing was said about Bathsheba and the sin. And yet she was guilty. And yet she lived. The judgment of the shenanigans only came to David. It only came to David. Nathan did not approach Bathsheba. He went to David. He went to Christ. Because Christ is he who has to deal with your sin. Not Bathsheba. It's David who has to deal with that. It's Christ who has to deal with that. It's the son of David who has to deal with that. And so whatever God pronounced on David was true also for Bathsheba because of union and representation. Whatever God says about David, he says about Bathsheba. Whatever God says about Christ, he says about you. So in Nathan saying to David, God has forgiven your sin. That was God saying to Bathsheba. She also had been forgiven of her sin. Her sin was not imputed to her, and the church thus was pronounced as justified when Christ Jesus, the greater Son of David, came and died and was pronounced as righteous. He was given over, I think it's Romans four twenty five. given over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. And God said, the sword would not depart from the house of David. And that sword, as I said, was God's judgment on the house of Judah. And that curse, and that sword was the curse that would follow David's house to even the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus, until he removed it on the cross. And this case is the same that was represented by the flaming sword that was in the Garden of Eden that prevented Adam and Eve from getting to the tree of life. It was following in the house of David, all the way to the cross. And that's why Galatians 3, 10-13 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith, yet the law is not of faith. But the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This curse that Christ redeemed us from is the sword that God had pointed to Christ. Through David, it was following the line of David, and Uriah, sorry, Absalom also died on a tree. He died on a tree. It was the handwriting of ordinances that were against us were taken care of on that cursed tree? The case was following the trail. It knew for whom it had come. The curse was always for Christ Jesus to deal with and to cause our redemption. What am I saying? I'm saying this is God's gospel. This is the offense of the cross. This is how God has made you righteous before him. He removed the curse, the sword, through Christ. That sword is not in your house. It followed Christ all the way to Mount Calvary and Christ removed it. I'm saying the non-imputation of your sin and the covering of all your sin by the blood of Christ, the son of David, and Bathsheba who died is what has made you a blessed man or woman. It's not that you're driving a 2023 brand new car or you have a new house or you have a lot of money in the bank. That does not constitute any blessing with respect to God. It doesn't mean even if you have 500 children, That's not the blessing. The blessing is the non-imputation of your sin. And Paul, saying to the Jews, your father David was not that righteous as a man. He was not a righteous man by any stretch of imagination. He was supposed to die because of sin. Go and read the text. And you know the story very well. But he lived because of this gospel that I'm preaching to you. This lazy boy theology gospel. The non-imputation of sin to the ungodly and the crediting of Christ's righteousness freely to them through faith alone. I'm very careful with every line that I say. Because they're trying to make a distinction between the true and that which is false. And because of that, the Holy Spirit comes and say bears on the testimony of David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Amen. We are done. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you and thank you for these many wonderful words, a lot of words spoken here to the testimony of how you have pronounced your people as righteous because you have not imputed our sins to us, but you have imputed them to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who put them away by his own death on the cross. He removed the sword that was on us, the curse, because of Adam We pray and thank you for the testimony of the blessed men. We thank you for the story of David, how you used it to bring us to the knowledge of how we have been made righteous ourselves. We thank you, Lord. We honor you for this blessed truth. We pray that you cause the people to hear and come back and listen again. We pray, Lord, for your church universal, May you continue to keep it by the preaching of the gospel and by your Holy Spirit. We honor you, glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, good people. We are done. And what was I going to say? I won't be available next week. Next weekend. I have to travel to Wisconsin to see Andy Shingy. Things are not looking good. The prognosis is really bad. I don't know if the Lord will give me a message to preach while I'm there or not. Depends on the situation. I will see what happens the next few days on my end, but I don't think I'll be available next week. So be praying for me, be praying for her. Uh, We need as much prayer. We need God's grace in all things. Thank you. We'll talk again soon.